Encouraging us to spend time in the Word and obey the Word, here's Pastor Ed Taylor. You will never find the blessings of God in disobedience. You will never find freedom. You will never find hope, strength, love through disobedience and compromise. Never, ever, never. When I open my Bible in the morning, it's not so I can stand before you and say, I did my devos today. When I open the Bible, I'm reminded of God's love for me. I'm reminded that it's not about the written word as much as it is about the living word, Jesus Christ. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You We follow Jesus because he is, just as he said, the way. It's not a way, but the way. Yet there's a constant pressure to turn back or to turn away from following him. It's nothing new under the sun, as we'll hear on today's Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. We continue in the book of Hebrews, which was written to address this perennial problem. Here with today's study is our teacher, Pastor Ed Taylor. Take your Bibles, open them to Hebrews chapter 9 as we return to our study in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, a Bible study that I've entitled The Perfect Eternal Tabernacle of God. We have been spending the last few weeks in our study in Hebrews looking at the tabernacle, that portable tent, that place of worship that was prescribed by God. And in it, we were looking at all the pieces of the tabernacle and how they point and are symbolic and are types of Jesus Christ. Pick up with me in verse 1 of chapter 9. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all which had the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, and which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Verse 5, above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Well, we chose to speak in detail about them, looking at each of them. And remember, the book of Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish Christians that were tempted to go backwards. Because when it comes to moving forward in our relationship with God, for us as believers, when it comes to moving forward in Christ, the Bible gives us a lot of encouragement that the key is to remain in Him. Sometimes that's referred to as abiding in Christ. Sometimes we'll refer to that as pressing forward, moving on, that our eyes would be focused upon Him that we would not take our eyes off of him. Or there's even a phrase that's used in the world where we say, keep your eyes on the prize. Well, when we use that phrase for us as Christians, when we say, keep your eyes on the prize, keep your eyes firmly fixed, the prize is Jesus Christ. That anytime you take your eyes off of him, you're going to be in trouble. Now, you think, what does that mean, Ed? Well, think of driving. I don't know if you've noticed, but you generally drive in the direction of your eyes. 
you may not realize that, but you will realize it that moment that you take three extra seconds looking at that billboard to where you feel bump, 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 because your car very gradually veered over toward where your eyes were. And they've got those little indentations on the side of the road to remind you, get back on track. And isn't life like that? Our eyes begin to veer left and right and our lives follow. And it's important that we keep our firm, fixed position following Jesus Christ. Because going backward is very easy. And I would even say going backward is easier than going forward. Anyone want to say amen to that? It's true. Going backward is much easier. It's harder making progress. It's harder enduring trials, temptations. We live in a culture that every single, we eat in this culture, live in this culture, work in this culture, play in this culture, like everything. We are in this culture that is primarily 99.9% .9 against God. There is not a tremendous amount of worship in this culture. So much so that we gather together to be strengthened to go back out into the culture to be the salt and light of the earth. And you live in this culture, it's like it's constantly, constantly going after you, tempting you, pressuring you, making you feel and believe and think and going after your mind, things that truly aren't consistent. And you add to that, you add to that a lack of Bible reading. If you just aren't reading your Bible, you're in trouble. You go, well, Ed, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, you're, you're not renewing your mind. You're not being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so if you're not in the word, you're in the world. And the world's going to influence you, whether you like it or not. It's easier to go backward than it is to go forward. We, we get tired. We get tempted. We lose heart. Things are fuzzy. We get hurt. We grieve. We go through overwhelming pressure and trials and difficulties. And, you know, don't think of going backward because it's easy when you're thinking of going backward thinking of backsliding. Because some of you are like, well, you know, I've never really experienced a serious season of backsliding before. And so in our minds, we're thinking going forward is a bunch of steps and going backward is a bunch of steps. But let me add this to your thinking. Going backward is not only backsliding. You start going backward when you stop going forward. You start going backward when you stop going forward. So think of it this, well, you know what? I'm just standing still and taking a rest right now. Well, that's the beginning of going backward. If you aren't moving on and you aren't pressing in, you're going backwards. And it doesn't have to be a huge backslidden experience. You could have all the outward emotions of religion and still be dissonant. Imagine that. You could be here today in a building dedicated. We call it the house of God. You're in the house today worshiping God. And some of you are as far from God as you've ever been in your life. Imagine that. You're in the house of God worshiping or among worshipers, but inside you are as far from God as you've ever been in your whole life because religion doesn't save you. And you can choose to be somewhere physically and not be there spiritually. And that's just what Hebrews is trying to teach us, especially when it comes to the tabernacle here. It was all outward. It had a purpose and God used it, but it didn't save a person. It didn't save a person. And so he describes the, the tabernacle in the first few verses and we looked at that in depth. Pick up in verse 6. Now when these things have been thus prepared, that's all the tabernacle, all the elements of tabernacle which was required to worship God in the old covenant. We, we also refer to that as the Mosaic covenant. We also refer to that as the law. So he says, when these things have been thus prepared, the priests 
always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services, but into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was, mark this, because we've looked at this, but I want you to see it. It was symbolic. And we've looked at some of the symbols. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect. Circle those phrases. Symbolic. So remember, symbolism in the Bible, pictures in the Bible, types in the Bible are significant and important, but not more important than the substance. So there's pictures and types that are important. The tabernacle was important, but not more important than Jesus Christ. And that's the whole theme of Hebrews. Jesus is better. He is the end. You have everything by faith in him. He is the sufficiency. He is the substance. So the tabernacle was important and vital, but it was symbolic. And it was not more important than Jesus. And then secondly, the old covenant, the sacrifices in verse 9 that were offered cannot make him who performed the service perfect. That was the weakness of the law. All your good deeds, all your good righteous acts, all your sacrifices, the blood that was shed did not make a person perfect. It didn't touch the inside of a person. And it's the same is true for you and me. Your performance, your good deeds... The attitude you may have today, well, I'm a good person, pastor. That, that's going to get me into, God loves me because I'm a good person. Well, first of all, I'm grateful that you see the goodness in your life. I'm grateful that you are a help to society, not a harm to society. I'm glad that you have a heart for the homeless and you have a heart. I'm glad that you're good in that sense. But compared to Jesus Christ, you're not that good. You're not that good. As good as we are, we're not that good. Because good defined by God is perfection. And let me tell you something, there isn't anyone among us that's perfect. We have, the Bible says, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that when you come to worship, it doesn't make you perfect. When you pray, it doesn't make you perfect. When you read your Bible, it doesn't make you perfect. Let me put it this way. Let's just say that you read your Bible for 10 hours last night. 10 hours. And you come to church and you meet a person that's read their Bible 10 minutes. Now, if you're not careful, you'll be kind of looking and going, okay, you know what? Maybe let's say it this way because the math will be easier. You're the 10 hours and they read their Bible for an hour. And so you're like, I am 10 times more loved than that guy. If you want to be loved like me, you should read your Bible 10 hours. I'm going 11 tomorrow and I'm doing 12 because I know that God loves me more when I do more. Not true. It's simply not true. God loves the person that didn't read their Bible in Christ by faith. He loves you when you don't read your Bible as much as when you do. And then you say, well then, Ed, why read my Bible? Well, because you live in a culture that is anti-God. And it's in God's word that you learn of him and you grow of him. Why sit through a Bible study except to learn the heart of God and his desire for your life? It's not to earn anything from God. If you get 10 minutes or 10 hours, God will not love you more than he does right now. But I can say this. You can read your Bible for 10 hours and not mean it. Like you could just read through, you can do one of those speed reading. I read the whole Bible in 10 hours. No, you didn't. God knows and he loves you. It's not the performance 
performance as a believer in Jesus Christ does not make you more lovable before God. I'm glad that God doesn't judge us by our performance. Otherwise, we'd all be in trouble. Because it's not by works that we've been saved, and neither is it by works that we live, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So he says it can't make you perfect. You can't be perfected by your acts and by your works. Only God. So that when they brought the blood through the priest for the sacrifice, it wasn't the blood, it wasn't the priest, it wasn't the tabernacle that saved the children of Israel. Who was it? God. It's always about God. Never forget that. It's not about my good deeds. It's about his good deed. It's not about my changed life. It's about his changing my life. It's all the focus is always on God. That's one of the reasons why people stay away from the Bible because as soon as you open the Bible, you remember that God, it's God. In the beginning, God. It doesn't say in the beginning, Ed, or your name. It's in the beginning, God. Everything begins and ends with him. And so when we look at the tabernacle, it didn't make anybody perfect. So then you ask, well, then why did they bring the animals to the tabernacle? Why did they build the tabernacle? Why did they follow God's instructions? Well, it's this principle. God will always bless obedience. There isn't ever a time in all of human history that God did not bless obedience. And so when you came through and you, remember it was a, it's known as a covenant. And the definition of a covenant is a, a binding agreement. And God, he initiated that covenant with man and said, if you do, then I will. And so as they followed their, bar, their side of the covenant, their side of the agreement, then God then blessed them. Because as true as it is that God always blesses obedience, understand this, God never blesses disobedience. You will never find the will of God in disobedience. You will never find the blessings of God in disobedience. You will never find the fullness of life. You will never find freedom. You will never find hope, strength, love through disobedience and compromise. Never, ever, never. And so why follow through with the agreement? Well, because then that kept you in relationship with God. It kept you close. When I open my Bible in the morning, it's not so I can stand before you and say, I did my devos today. It's not why I did that. That's, when I open the Bible, I'm reminded of God's love for me. I'm reminded that it's not about the book. It's not about the written word as much as it is about the living word, Jesus Christ. And I need to be reminded of that because I live in the same world you do. I operate in the same culture you do. I'm faced with many of the same temptations you do. And as we face them together, God strengthens us and helps us and comforts us and encourages us and reminds us of his love. The law did not bring you to the end. So for the Hebrews, for them to leave faith in Jesus Christ, to go back to Judaism, this religious system, to go back to the old covenant would have been an utter failure. And it would have kept them in circular frustration it doesn't make any sense. Just like backsliding absolutely makes no sense that you would go back to the world to find the satisfaction, peace, and comfort that you're lacking right now only to find that the world's going to kick you in the tail again and beat you up and ruin you and hurt you and now you got more consequences and then you come back to the Lord broken and humble but now it's, it just makes any sense because you just keep going in this circle. And if that's you today and you keep living a circular life as a believer, repent today and stay put in Jesus Christ. Don't go back to the world. It has nothing for you. Going back to the party scene isn't going to get you where you want to go. Going back to relationship after relationship is not going to get you where you want to go. 
finding yourself in a place of satisfying those cravings and things in your life by stuff that will destroy you isn't going to get you where you want to go. And for these guys that Hebrews are written to, if they were to go back to the law, you know what the law would tell them? Go to Jesus. That's exactly what it would say. He has come. What are you coming back to me for? All these pictures and types and symbols, they're fulfilled. And that is the entire summary of the book of Hebrews. If you go back to the law, first of all, don't go back. But if you do go back to the law, it's just going to point you to Jesus. And the reason it's important for us on a variety of different levels, but one, one important reason is that there are those around town, there are those that hold or are going back to the Torah. And they're emphasizing the law. And they're emphasizing the feasts. And they're emphasizing things, although they say it's really not for salvation, it, it really comes out that way. So they'll come to you and they'll ask you, do you keep the feasts? And the answer to that is, yes. You go, Ed, I've never seen a feast around here. I'll get to that in a second. Somebody comes to you and says, do you keep the law? Do you keep the fullness of the law? The answer to that is, yes. And they go, come on, man. You don't keep the law. You're a failure. You made mistakes. And I said, yeah, I am a failure. And I have made mistakes. Then how can you say you keep the law? which is a great question to answer because it's very simple. You say this, I keep the law and I keep the feast and I keep the entirety of the old covenant by faith in Jesus Christ because he kept it for me. You don't have to be stumbled by, well, you know, if you're not participating in these things and you're not doing these things, you're not a real Christian. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not true. By faith in Jesus Christ, you have it all. There isn't anything more outside of faith in Christ. And so notice, he says that in the old covenant, access to God was very limited. Only once a year, the high priest would go in and he would sprinkle the blood. They would do all of their work and then once a year, the high priest would go in. On the day of atonement, he would go in to offer the blood of the sacrifice of God for the sins of the people. That was the way that God prescribed. And it happened only once a year. But notice it had to happen every year. It had to happen every year. It wasn't finished. It wasn't complete. The system happened every year until the promised Savior. That's what Messiah means. The promised Messiah. The promised Savior. Before God, it would happen until God himself would come down in human flesh. Jesus Christ would offer his blood once for all. And so by the time of the time of Jesus and the time of the writing of Hebrews in this time period, it was a fascinating thing. I want to read to you. I don't normally do this, but I want to read to you an extended passage from a commentary because he did a much better job describing this than I ever would to consider. Because we think of, I know sometimes I think of when I'm reading something in my imagination, I think, okay, the guy goes in, throws blood, comes back out. Check this out. Listen to the system and how everyone would see it. And I quote, The week before Yom Kippur, the high priest would never leave the temple ground. For every day of that week, he would rehearse what he would do on the Day of Atonement. When that day finally came, arrayed in his high priestly robes, the high priest would sacrifice a bull on the brass altar in the courtyard as a dedication offering. That done, he would take off his high priestly garments and put on his linen garments, long underwear really, covered with a tunic and a sash. Then he would sacrifice another bull as a sin offering for himself. At this point, two goats would be chosen by lot and a red scarlet cord would be tied around one, signifying that it was the sacrificial goat. The other goat, we know as the scapegoat, would be carried into the wilderness 
Why two goats, you ask? Because our sins are not only forgiven, but they're also forgotten, carried away as far as the east is from the west. The priest would then take the coals from the outside altar with two handfuls of incense into the holy place. And as he put them on the altar of incense, a cloud would fill the room. Returning to the brass altar, he would carry the blood that had drained from the bowl back into the holy place. And this time he would go through the veil into the holy of holies where he would sprinkle the blood seven times on the ground, seven times on the mercy seat. After that, he would sacrifice the sacrificial goat take its blood back into the Holy of Holies, where he would sprinkle it again seven times on the ground, seven times on the mercy seat. Finally, after sacrificing the bull and going into the Holy of Holies, and after sacrificing the goat and going into the Holy of Holies, he would come back out, place his hand upon the living goat, and saying, bear and be gone. In other words, bear the sin and take it away. And then they'd release the goat and it would run out toward Watkins and toward Bennett and it's still running toward Lyman right now, all the way out. I mean, that's what it would be like. We, I would want it running that way. And then as you're watching it run, remember symbolically that that goat is carrying your sins as far as the east. You would not see it. And if it turned around to come back, you would say, no, go back, get away. Because there are times when you're reminded of your sins, aren't there? And you've got to have that visual. I mean, this was a very elaborate thing. Let me continue. Then at last, the priest would stand before the people. With both hands, he would pronounce, forgiven. And the people would begin to hoop and holler and celebrate. Because if the priest wasn't purified properly, if he went into the holy place presumptuously, his resulting death would signify that they weren't forgiven. So the people always waited to see if the high priest would make it out of the Holy of Holies. Are we forgiven, they wondered. Did the sacrifices work? Is God pleased? Are we okay? So I love how the commentator now ties it. Let me give you one more paragraph. He ties it in with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is amazing because the whole Bible is about Jesus Christ. All of it from beginning to end. One of the richest things you can do to enhance your Bible reading is to look for the pictures and the types of Jesus Christ. They're everywhere. So check this out. He says, don't you see what happened concerning our high priest, Jesus Christ? The whole world was waiting and watching without even knowing what they were watching for. And our great high priest who was wrapped in white linens emerged from the Holy of Holies on Easter morning coming out of that tomb. You say, the tomb being the Holy of Holies? Well, certainly. Remember when the disciples were peeking in the tomb that morning? They saw a bench sprinkled with blood, his blood, where his body had lain. And we are told by the gospel writer that on either side of the bench sat an angel. Remember the Holy of Holies? The mercy seat had two angels looking at one another. And thus the picture of a blood-sprinkled mercy seat was complete. And when Jesus Christ came out of the tomb on that third day, it was the final declaration of forgiveness, not just for a year, but for all of eternity. Oh, what a Savior we have in Jesus. For time and for eternity, is He your Savior? He can be. You need only ask Him. He died and rose again to save you. 
Pastor Ed Taylor is developing his study of Hebrews right now on abounding grace. Thanks for taking part in today's Bible study. To hear it again, visit our website at aboundinggraceradio.com, or you can hear us through our app. Simply search for Ed Taylor in the App Store or Google Play and download the free app today. We also have a podcast on Apple Podcasts. Our pick of the month is Five-Minute Apologetics for Today by Ron Rhodes. As Christians, we sometimes encounter objections about the Bible, and maybe you're left wondering how to answer them or where do you look. This wonderful book offers you 365 quick answers to key questions. I think you'll find it super helpful the next time you come across a question you're not sure how to answer, and we'll gladly send you a copy when you support Abounding Grace today with a gift of $25 or more. Just pick up the phone right now and call 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-30-GRACE. And we want this radio ministry to be the sort of ministry that God uses. That's our prayer and heart's desire. And if you'd like to get behind what we're doing and offer a one-time gift or ongoing support, we'd sure appreciate it. You can donate to the ministry at AboundingGraceRadio.com or again, call 877-30-GRACE. Join us each day on Abounding Grace as we go and grow through a study in Hebrews with Pastor Ed Taylor. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado, here in Aurora.